I want to welcome in those of you who are joining us live on the web uh, right now or, or maybe catching this in archived form later in the week. Good to have you be a part of worship today at Freedom. Uh, Jeff and band, thank you guys for doing a great job of leading us in worship today. Uh, yeah, really, really top notch. And, and this wasn't planned, but I'm going to ask y'all if you will to close us out where we started today. The song we opened with, I'm going to ask y'all if you would. Uh, we we want to exit on that song. I, I don't know about you, but uh, I, I think sometimes there is a little bit of a struggle. And I, I mean, I certainly didn't sense it this morning, but I think it's true on a lot of Sundays that there's a little bit of a struggle that we maybe we come in here and our gaze is a little bit downward. It's a little bit focused just kind of on us and our situation. And it's, it, it can be difficult to engage your heart in worship, can it? And it's sort of easy to fall into a rut of feeling like, well, Sunday morning, you know, we come in and we sing our little three or four or five songs and we hope that, th that God was pleased by that. We hope that maybe that was sort of a little bright moment for God when we told him how much we loved him and we sang these little songs to him. And it, it's easy to sort of feel like that's sort of all that was accomplished in worship. And it's very easy to fall into the trap of thinking that the worship part of what we do when we gather for this time is sort of, well, hopefully that sort of lifts our spirits and hopefully it puts a smile on God's face. But I just want to remind you that something far greater than that is happening when we gather for worship. You, you hear me say frequently, don't fall into the trap of thinking that the sermon is the main event. It is not. What I share, though the Word of God is so vitally important and we need to be instructed, the sermon is secondary. Honoring and worshiping God our Father and the Lord Jesus. That's the main event. And I just want to remind you that it's not just important because it pleases God, but there is stuff that's happening in the heavenlies when we worship that I can't even explain and it's difficult for us to grasp, but it is significant. Things are happening when we worship, things that only happen when we worship. I mean, we're given little glimpses in the Old Testament of, of how significant this is. Maybe one of the best examples is when you look at, at what happened among the people of God under the reign of David. You know, that was really the apex of, of history for the Israelites. Living under David and Solomon's rule, God moved so powerfully in that time. And it is not coincidental that King David saw the importance of worship being central for the people of God to the extent that he commissioned lots of people that it was their full-time job to worship. 24-7 in Israel under David's reign, there were singers worshiping at the temple day and night. And while the armies were out conquering enemies and pushing back the boundaries, making room for the kingdom of God to be ushered in, all of that was happening in the context of just worship constantly going on in the heart of Israel. That is a picture for us of this great reality that as we take part in God's great story of seeing the kingdom of darkness pushed out and the kingdom of God's dear son, our Lord Jesus, ushered in, it always happens in an environment of praise and worship. When we worship, 
Stuff is happening in spiritual warfare. The enemy hates that. He is so repulsed by that. He is being pushed back. And there is room that is being made for kingdom work to take place. And so I want to remind you, Sunday morning is not a compact little experience that's supposed to just take up 20 or 30 minutes of our lives. It is the culmination of a bunch of different lives where we are worshiping God through the week and where we are declaring day and night, Jesus, 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 glory to your name, honor to your name. There's no name greater than Jesus. There's no one higher than our God. Hearts that declare that all week long. We just get together and it's a pep rally as we declare together the greatness of God. And that's not just about lifting our spirits. Boy, that is about stepping into what God is doing. Now, ultimately, that's not really what I'm here to talk about today. But it is tied to what I'm here to talk about today. We are starting a new series that's going to take us through most of the summer. And I think you're going to have fun with this series. It's, it's going to be an enjoyable series. It's entitled Unexpected Heroes. And what we're going to be doing is every week we're going to be looking at different stories in the Bible of different key characters who really become just such unexpected heroes in God's unfolding story because you see God is crafting an epic story it is the great story in all of history and the really striking thing is that every one of us are made to truly be significant participants in the great story that God is telling and it's not a story just to be told it is an event that is unfolding and we are born with a longing for, it's a, a pre-designed, pre-wired longing for participation in this great drama that God is creating. The scripture says God has set eternity in the hearts of men and women. That's not just about time. It's not just that God has given us a sense that we're going to, to exist for longer than our bodies last. Although that's a part of it. When it says that God has put eternity in the hearts of men, it's a reflection of the fact that there is this story that is far greater. It's going to last far longer than the 70 or 80 or 90 years that we're going to live in our lifespans. It's a, a big story, and God has put it in our hearts to participate, to connect with that story. And you see it all the time that there are people who have not yet understood that story. They don't understand in any way how they fit into it, and they feel lost in life, and they, they begin to really search to try and find out, who am I? I mean, how many times have you heard of people that they sort of disconnected from life and all the normal stuff you're supposed to be doing, and they just kind of, whatever, they like took a backpack and started roaming the world looking for themselves. You know what they were looking for? They were looking for their point of connection in God's great story. They were trying to figure out where they fit into the thing that really matters. You know, we'll express it in different ways. Like, I'm just trying to find my meaning in life. What we're talking about there is I'm trying to fig figure out where I fit. Because the problem is every single one of us are born not recognizing the great epic story that is unfolding. We are all born with the same condition. We're born only knowing this much. And you know what this much is? It's my life and my little circle of the people that I know and the experiences that I'm having as I'm just sort of rocking along as a child, an adolescent, and a young adult. And we're born, every single one of us, where the little story that we know, we are the central character in that story. You know that's a fact. 
If you've raised children, you know every child is born just knowing this, and they are the center of this little universe. This is the story of me, and it's all about me. And some of us have mamas or daddies that reinforce the fact that we are the center of the universe, and it's supposed to be all about us. It's only when we break beyond this and discover no there is such a bigger, more important story that is unfolding. And it's God's story. The Lord Jesus is the central character in this story. And the amazing thing is this. There's a really significant role that he's called you and me to play in his great epic story. The reason that you and I love movies, that we love good books... The reason we love great stories, and we've loved them since we were tiny. What does every child want to hear at bedtime? Tell me a story. We long for stories because stories become a way for us to begin to understand and figure out how we connect to the great story. In fact, I would dare say this. Every great story that has ever been written, that has ever been put on the big screen, every great story in some way, and if you really look at it, it's amazing how oftentimes in big ways, every story is a reflection of God's great story. Think about that the next time you go to the movies and how the really great stories of life are a reflection of the bigger story that God is telling. And when we read books and go to movies and we, we get engaged in stories, what are we doing? We are trying to, along the way, whether you realize it or not, you're looking for where you fit in that story. You're looking for which character is you in that movie, in that book. Every time I read a great book, I'm, I'm always thinking in the back of, the mind, of my mind which character I would be in that, which one is most like my life. We're looking for ourselves. We're trying to figure out where we fit in the story. And so as we move through this series this summer... We're going to look at all of these different stories and all of them give us glimpses of how individual characters fit into God's bigger narrative. And what you're going to see is as we look at story after story, you're going to discover yourself. You're going to find people along the way that you go, ooh, I really can identify with that. And we're going to begin to catch a little more of a glimpse of how we fit into God's great story and what that means for how we're supposed to be living our lives. So today, we start with the first character that we're going to talk about, the first unexpected hero, and his name is Jacob. Now, it's a well-known name in Scripture, and, and he actually, his story fills about 10 or 11 chapters of the Old Testament, as the Bible goes. That's a, a pretty significant chunk, but it's really sort of interesting how little most people typically know about Jacob. And what I'm going to do in the time that I have today is I'm just going to tell you his story. We'll, we'll read a couple of passages about him. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis 25. His story is summed up from Genesis 25 to 35, mostly. And we'll, we'll zoom into a couple of spots there. But mostly, I'm going to begin by telling you Jacob's story. And then we're going to back up and take a little bit of time to just unpack why his story matters and really how it relates to us. Jacob, just to set the stage, Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. We all know that Abraham is considered the father of the Jewish nation. When God put in motion a plan to redeem mankind, he started with one man. He selected Abram from Ur of the Chaldees, and he said of him, and I mean, this is just God's sovereign choice. 
It wasn't because Abraham deserved it or worked his way into greatness. God just said, I'm, I'm going to start with you. And through you, I'm going to form a vast nation. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. And I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth through your seed. He's speaking of what he would do through Jesus. And we know the story of Abraham, how he got to be a very old man and, uh, in terms of childbearing years, uh, he and his wife. And had not had a son and, and the whole thing of, oh, I've got to make a way to have a son. And so he, through Hagar, his, his servant, he has a child, Ishmael, horrible mistake. All the ongoing conflict in the Middle East, a reflection of that. Uh, but God, the promise of God was fulfilled and it is very much his old age. God gave Abraham and Sarah a son named Isaac. This is the child of promise. This is the one through whom all the promises of God would be reckoned. Well, in Genesis 25, we see that Isaac takes a wife named Rebekah, and much like his mom, he finds that his wife is barren. He marries when he's 40 years old, and for the next 19 years, no kids. And that's a big deal. You know, how's the promise of God going to be fulfilled through Isaac when he can't have any children. And so in Genesis 25, we read that, that he went to the Lord and asked the Lord for favor, and God answered. And we read in verse 21 of uh, Genesis 25 that Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren, and the Lord answered his prayer. And his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. And the babies, plural, she's carrying twins, twin boys, the babies jostled each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. This is a pregnant woman saying, God, what in the world is happening in my belly? I feel like they're fighting a war down there. And here's what God said in response. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. It is a prophetic word that is a reflection of the fact that God had a sovereign plan laid out before these twins were ever born. And what she is beginning to discover is that the promise of God to Abraham through Isaac is now going to be passed on through not both of these children, through one of them only, and that each of them would become a, the head of a nation. One of them, essentially, the head of the nation of Israel, and the other one, the head of the Edomites. And these two twins are being carried together in her womb. And it doesn't seem significant to us because the whole thing of older and younger doesn't mean a lot to us. It meant a great deal in this time. It was unthinkable that the older would serve the younger, but that's what the Lord is saying. There's going to be stuff turned upside down with these two. So, verse 24, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb, and the first came out, was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau, which apparently meant Harry. That sounds like an ugly baby, doesn't it? A red baby covered in hair. I can't even picture that. It's like she gave birth to a little billy goat or something. And after this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob, which that, that name literally meant to grasp the heel, but it meant a lot more than that. And Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The name Jacob, it's still a common name today. Uh, you've all heard the expression, uh, you're pulling my leg. And what does that mean when somebody says, oh, you're pulling my leg? It, it means you, you're fooling me. 
You're, you're deceiving me. You're, that's not true. What you just said is not true. You're trying to pull one over on me, right? You know, that, that's what we mean by you're pulling my leg. That term has ancient origins, like 4,000 years ancient. One who grasps the heel, one who pulls the leg. The term meant to be a deceiver, to be a, a, a prankster, a, a deceptive person. And so the name Jacob, and, and boy, they put a lot of stock in giving a name that was going to match up to your character. They gave him the name Jacob, the younger one, the one grasping the heel coming out. Well, the boys grew up, and Esau, the hairy, beautiful child, uh, he became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Now, Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Already we have the makings for Everybody Loves Raymond. Everybody Loves Jacob was the original story. The doting mother who loved the younger son, the, the less masculine son. Dad who loved the older. If you've had multiple kids, you can so much relate to this part in the story. I mean, these two came out at the same time, within minutes of each other, and they were as different as night and day. Esau was, you know, he was a manly man. And, you know, he was hairy. He loved the woods. If he lived today, you know, he would have worn camouflage and he would have been a part of Duck Dynasty, that crowd. You know, he, he's that kind of man. And Jacob could not have been more different. He would have been content to never go hunting in all of his life. You can bet Jacob's belt and sandals always matched. He was a man who liked to hang near the tents. He was a mama's boy. He liked to cook. He liked to be with his mother. And his mother was crazy about him. Well, the first story that we hear about Jacob and his brother Esau happens many years later. We don't know if they're teens or, or young adults. But Esau had been out doing what he loved to do. He'd been out hunting and he had come back from a hunt. He was famished and Jacob was doing what he loved to do. He was cooking and watching HGTV. And uh, when, when Esau comes in and he smells the lentil stew that Jacob has been cooking and he's so hungry and he's like, man, give me a bowl of that. And Jacob, who's always conniving. Jacob is one of those guys, as we'll, we're going to see, he was the center of his own universe. Everything else was really designed for him. And he was willing to use any hook or crook that he had to to make sure that he always got what he wanted because life was about him. And mom reinforced that in his life. Well, one thing that had always bugged Jacob was that Esau came out of his mom just a couple of minutes ahead of him. Now we would say, what's the big deal about that? It's a huge deal in Jacob's day. Because the firstborn child, even if he's only born two minutes earlier, the firstborn is treated completely different. He's the second in command in the family. He's the one who's going to essentially take over the family business. He will get a double share of whatever the inheritance is just by virtue of popping out first. That was what Esau had. That was his birthright. That chapped Jacob. Because the world was supposed to be all about and for Jacob. And this wasn't right. It wasn't fair. Just because my brother's five minutes older than me. And so he had been thinking for the longest time, how do I get this straightened out? And he sees his brother really hungry one day, wanting a bowl of his stew. And he says, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a bowl of my stew for one thing. Just tell me I get your birthright. We don't know if Esau was just thinking he was kidding or if he was just eating up with stupid that day or what. But for whatever reason, Esau said, 
Sure, whatever. What's a birthright to me? Give me the stew. And he takes the stew. And in Jacob's mind, the birthright really did change hands that day. And he is in his own mind now. Ha ha. It's like I'm the oldest. I get the double portion. That's the first glimpse that we get of Jacob. Narrative stops right there. We don't hear any more about that for a season. The next time we hear anything about Jacob and his twin brother, it's years down the line, and their father Isaac has become very old, and in fact he's about to die. He's so old, he's blind, and he knows his life is at its end. And Isaac said, it is time for me to pass on the blessing to my son, to my favorite, my beloved Esau. Now, I'm just going to tell you, there is nothing in our culture that comes anywhere close to being the equivalent of this, so I can't compare it to anything. The passing of the blessing. It was so significant in Old Testament times. In, in their minds, their understanding of what was taking place, and, and by the way, they had a more accurate understanding typically than we do of the power of the spoken word, a word spoken in faith. That there was power unleashed in the doing of that. Well, their understanding was that there would be a moment of time where a father could, could, together with his son, go into the presence of the Lord and in that special setting, father, son, and in God's presence, could almost prophetically declare that this is what God says he's going to do in your life. This will be your destiny. There's really nothing in our past that, that looks like this, is there? I mean, you, wouldn't you love to have had that moment when somebody could have said, okay, here's the deal. You know, you just graduated high school or you just graduated college. Now, let me tell you, here is what God's going to do with you. That would have been sweet, wouldn't it? Well, in Old Testament times, they would do that. So Isaac said, Esau, today is the day. I'm going to pass the blessing on you. You and I will go into the presence of the Lord and I'll declare your destiny. He said, what I want you to do is first, you go out and you hunt and you kill an animal and come back and cook it the way I like it cooked. Bring it to me. And we're going to eat it together and then we're going to go into the Lord's presence and I'm going to bless you. This is going to be an irrevocable once in a lifetime event. So Esau says, yes, sir. He heads for the field, goes out on the hunt. But one key thing happened right then. Mama, sweet mama was listening in. And she heard that whole exchange and she immediately took off and said, Jacob, we've got to get busy. We've got to act right now. I just heard your dad say he is about to pass the blessing the big blessing onto your brother, and we can't let that happen. So here's what you've got to do. He just sent him out to go kill some game and to cook it and bring it in to receive the blessing. You know your daddy's blind, so here's what I want you to do. Quickly, go out and find two young goats. We're going to butcher them. I'm going to cook them, and you get ready, and you're going to take that meal into your dad, and you're going to receive the blessing. Jacob's thinking about that, and part of him thinks that's a great idea, but part of him's scared to death. We're going to find out Jacob lives his life in fear. He's like, well, Mom, that, that's great, but uh, you know, how's Dad going to think that it's really Esau? We don't, we don't look alike or sound alike. What if he touches me? He's going to know my smooth skin, and you know, Esau's hairy skin. And Mom said, that's fine. We'll take the skin of a goat. We'll wrap it around you and just let him touch that. You know, he's looked like a goat since he was born. He, he'll, he'll think it's Esau. So sure enough, goofy story, but it's what happens. Mama cooks the meal. Jacob brings it in. And at first, Isaac isn't convinced. He's like, it, 
you know, who is this? Oh, it's your son Esau. Well, you don't sound like Esau. Come over here so I can get my hands on you. And sure enough, he feels the goat fur and he's like, that's definitely Esau. And they eat the meal together. And then Isaac conveys the blessing. The irrevocable blessing is passed on to Jacob. And uh, we actually read the specific blessing in Genesis 27, verse 27, when he says, Ah, the, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. Boy, that, somebody ought to bottle that scent. Mm-hmm. Manly. May God give you of heaven's dew and of earth's richness an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and make the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and may those who bless you be blessed. And so when the blessing is over, Jacob scurries away. And no sooner has he gotten out of his father's presence than Esau comes in with his kill ready to cook. And he prepares the meal, and he goes into his dad. Dad, I made a meal just like you asked for. And suddenly Isaac is almost in a panic, and he says, who, who is this? He says, well, it's your son Esau. And in that moment it clicks that he's been tricked. And Esau finds out that he's been tricked. And, and he says, Dad, well, surely you've saved a blessing for me. There's got to be something left. And Isaac basically says, I can't take back what I've given to your son. And, and so now, the blessing that he gives to Esau, boy, it is not a blessing that you would want. He speaks prophetically over his life, and he speaks what I'm sure he thought that he would have been speaking over Jacob, but the roles have been reversed. It is the beginning to be the fulfillment of what was prophesied when they were in their mother's womb. When Esau hears this, that his brother's going to rule over him and, and the blessing is on him. He is furious and he makes up his mind that day, I'm going to kill that joker. Dad's about to die and I'm not going to break his heart. I'm going to let him die and when we get through those weeks of mourning following that, I am going to kill that stupid little sissy brother of mine and finally be done with him. Well, once again, Marie, I mean mother, if you watch Everybody Loves Raymond, it really is the Marie character. But once again, Mama hears what's going on and she sees the anger that Esau has and she runs to intervene for sweet little Jacob and says, Son, your brother's so angry. We are going to have to keep you safe. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to the, the land that Abraham came from. It's up in uh, eastern Turkey. And I want you to stay there with my brother Laban, your uncle Laban. And you just stay there as long as you have to until things cool off here and you can return. And so Jacob takes off like a coward and runs far, far away to the north. He goes to his uncle Laban. And when he gets there, he almost immediately meets a woman that he finds beautiful and is attracted to. And her name is Rachel. And he decides very quickly he wants to marry Rachel. And here's where the story takes this wonderfully uh, perfect twist, a very ironic twist. Jacob the deceiver who has been conniving and twisting and lying to always get what he wants. And boy, it is about to begin to come back on him. He sees the woman that he wants to marry and, and he goes to his uncle Laban. This is another of those weird Old Testament things. 
He, he wants to marry his first cousin. So it's like his, his uncle is also about to be his father-in-law. And yeah, that's just weird. But that's just the way it was in the Old Testament. So he said, you know, I want to marry Rachel, your daughter. Can I do that? And Laban says, well, you can marry her, but only if you first serve me for the next seven years. I want seven years labor for her hand in marriage. And he says, you know what? It's worth it. I'll give you seven years. So, I mean, guys, think about that one. If you had to work seven years for a woman's hand, you'd think long and hard before you'd ask for it, wouldn't you? That's pretty stout, but he does. He serves his uncle for seven years. And here is one of the weirdest stories in the Old Testament. I, we don't know exactly how this happened. I'm just going to tell you the, the best I can from Scripture. That, and their wedding ceremonies were very different from ours. But they, after seven years, he goes through the deal to marry Rachel. And at the conclusion of it all, the thing that seals the deal and you are now married is the consummation of that. When you go in the tent and you share physical union together, when you are intimate, you are fully married in that moment. Well, somehow, and we don't know if the bride had to wear such a heavy veil that you couldn't see or whatever, but somehow in the whole deal, Laban pulled a bait and switch. He thought that he was marrying Rachel, the younger daughter. Rachel had an older sister named Leah, and she wasn't too much to look at. She was kind of hard on the eyes. He was, she was not the woman that he wanted to marry. But when the wedding night came, and they had gone through the, the ceremony, and he goes into a, apparently a very dark tent, and he awaits his bride coming in. She comes in in what must have been total darkness, and they conclude the transaction. And when the sun comes up the next morning, there is no veil and Jacob wakes up and rolls over and looks, and he is not looking at Rachel. He is looking at the homely older sister and going, uh-oh, what just happened? The deceiver has just been deceived. The, the witty one has just been outwitted. And he goes to his uncle and says, what is this you have done? I worked for seven years to get your daughter Rachel in marriage, and I wake up this morning to find out I am married to ugly Leah. And Laban acts like he's all surprised. Well, what do you mean? I mean, we have a custom here. We can't give the younger daughter in marriage until the older daughter's married. So I just sort of assumed you knew. You were getting Leah. He is so frustrated. Can you imagine? Oh, can you just imagine? Seven years waiting for the woman of your dreams only to get her ugly sister. Well, he says, I want Rachel. And Laban says, well, you can have Rachel. Oh, you've got to give me seven more years of service. Oh burned he says you know what she's worth it I'll give you seven more years and he says you can have her now in marriage if you'll promise to work for seven more years for you he says I'll do it and so now he gets Rachel but he got a two for one deal what a loser of a deal man can you imagine that being married not just to two women but to sisters ladies can you imagine sharing your husband with your sister Freaky deaky. It is strange. That's what he got when the deceiver had done to him what he had been doing to others. He got lied to. He got finagled. Well, for we find out that it is for 20 years altogether. Seven years and seven years serving to, to get the hand of Rachel. And then for six years beyond that, that Jacob lives in this faraway land in Haran. And finally, after 20 years, Jacob is just so fed up with his life. Laban has 
done him wrong so many different ways. He said at least ten times, he's changed my wages, he's changed our deals. And he's, Jacob's just lived in fear because of how Laban has related to him. And he's, he just can't stand it anymore. And so he, he just decides that when Laban's not around, he's going to take his wives and his children and everything that he thought that he deserved and pack it up and head south as fast as he can. So that's exactly what he does. They take off. And when Laban comes back and he realizes that his, his daughters and his grandchildren and a lot of the flocks and stuff are all gone along with Jacob, he is very angry. And he takes off in hot pursuit and he overtakes Jacob and the, and the whole big entourage. And he's angry. He says, what have you done? And there's this whole big conflict. And Jacob basically, you know, kind of cowers and says, well, I was scared. I was scared you were going to take my wives away from me. I was scared of what you were going to do and I just needed to get away. And so they, there's this ugly kind of rough exchange. But then they finally part ways. And Jacob no longer can live in Haran. So he takes his wives and his kids and servants. And, and God's blessed him. And there's now quite a, a, a huge flock and an entourage. And they head south. But they are heading back toward Esau, toward the homeland. And Jacob is scared to death. And he's growing more frightened with every step further southward. And as they finally get to that point... That they're almost home after 20 years, he's petrified. Because all he can think about is how much Esau hated him. How they always had a bad relationship. And how the last thing he knew from Esau was that he had just vowed that he would kill Jacob. And he's trying to figure out, all right, how can I, how can I smooth this out? How can I make this work? Because that's Jacob. He can fix anything. He can make it work for him. And he's like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to send a servant. I'm going to send gifts. I'm going to send an emissary ahead of me to smooth it all out. So he did. He sent a trusted servant. You go. You take gifts to, to Esau. And, and you say exactly what I tell you to say. You smooth this all out. So he sends the guy out. And he waits for him to come back. And sure enough, very soon, uh, the servant comes back. And it's, it's like, well, I've got good news and bad news. What's the good news? Well, the good news is I did find Esau. And I gave him your gifts, and I told him that you were coming. What's the bad news? Well, the bad news is Esau's coming out to meet you, and he's bringing 400 of his men with him. Oh, Jacob's heart just drops when he hears that. Because he knows that this is not a welcome home party. Esau is coming out to finish what he set out to do 20 years earlier. Jacob is scared to death. He's trying to figure out what to do. And he knows that the next day he'll be confronted with Esau and 400 men. There's no way he can stand up to that. He doesn't have an army with him. And he's trying to figure out how to save himself. He's gonna, he finally decides, just in desperation, he's going to split his family, his servants, and his flocks into two groups. He's going to put a wife in this group and a wife over here, some kids on each side, servants on each side, and put them far enough apart. He said maybe when Esau comes, he'll kill off one group, and while he's killing them, the other group can escape. Boy, that's optimism and courage, isn't it? Don't you hope you're the wife in the winning crowd, you know, the, the escape crowd. That's his big plan. And so the night before he's going to have this confrontation with Esau... He gets both groups on the other side of the river from him. And, uh, and Esau, I mean, Jacob stays on the side of the river where he's going to be the first to confront Esau. And that night, Jacob has an encounter with God that completely transforms his life. 
It's a bizarre encounter. We're going to, in just a minute, we're going to read that in more detail. But for the moment, just suffice it to say, God, he wrestled with God for a long time. And when that night was done, he emerged from that tent, physically injured. He would have a different walk. He would limp for the rest of his life from having wrestled with the Lord. But he, he left with more than a changed hip. He left with a changed heart. And he was a different man for the rest of his life. And the final significant glimpse that we get of Jacob following that day, the last two glimpses, he lives as a different man. The next day, he and Esau are completely reconciled. You see, when his heart was changed, God intervened and changed the heart of Esau. And he no longer was coming out to kill his brother. By the time they met face to face, Esau came and he hugged and he kissed his brother. And they were reconciled together. And the final glimpse that we're given of Jacob, he returns to Bethel. He returns to the Holy Land where he's taking possession of the land that God had promised to him. And he leads his family to let go of all of their pagan ways and their pagan gods. And together they truly turn to serve the one true God. And Jacob, whose name was changed by the Lord on the night that he wrestled with him, his identity was changed that night, and God gives him a new name. He's no longer Jacob. From that point on, he's Israel. When he was Jacob, he was the deceiver. But Israel, the name means one who wrestles with God. It was a reminder of the night when he wrestled with the Lord. And when he finally, finally surrendered his heart to the Lord and was a changed man. And as a result, his family was changed and their destiny was changed. Now, I want to take just a few minutes to very quickly rewind from that story and say, well, you know, what's heroic about that? And why is that story recorded at such great length in the scriptures? If you've got your outline, pull it out. And we're going to just very quickly move through some high points in that. The first thing that we discover about Jacob and, and how the Lord sets the stage in the Jacob story is to just show us Jacob's flaws and his dysfunctional past, it's the, the thing that makes Jacob an unexpected hero because he's so jacked up. We see that Jacob was a deceiver and was just so completely self-centered. Esau says uh, of Jacob in Genesis 27, 26, my brother deserves the name Jacob, deceiver, because he's already cheated me twice. The first time he cheated me out of my rights as the firstborn son, and now he has cheated me out of my blessing. That's, that's just who Jacob is. He'll lie, he'll swindle, he'll do whatever he has to do because nobody else matters. It's all about me getting what I want. You know anybody like that? Isn't it crazy how many of our families have somebody like that in them? That's who Jacob was. He also was a deceiver with his uncle Laban. He, he tried to swindle him and, and uh, we read in chapter 31 while Laban was off shearing the sheep Rachel stole her father's household gods. It's interesting to me, after Rachel had been with Jacob for a while, she takes on his ways. And Jacob had concealed his plan so well that Laban the Aramean had no idea what was going on. He was totally in the dark, so Jacob got away with everything that he had and was soon across the Euphrates, headed for the hill country of Gilead. In other words, he had grabbed up everything he wanted from his uncle-slash-father-in-law and was headed for the high country. He was headed to get out of Dodge having swindled even him. Part of the, the fatal flaw in Jacob 
was that he was such a self-centered deceiver, but part of the deal was that he also came from a really dysfunctional background, that his parents were divided in their love for their sons. From the get-go, we read about how, you know, Isaac was just loved his oldest son, Esau, but Mama was crazy about the younger. But it was beyond just that. And I, I know in a lot of families, there's that dynamic of like, you know, one parent identifies with one child, another parent with the other child. It, it was beyond that. I mean, and you see it in the story. I mean, Mom is willing to lie and deceive at the expense of her son and, you know, even willing to lie to her husband. Anything for Junior. It is just a reminder that brokenness begets brokenness. Broken parents will pass on their brokenness to their children if God doesn't somehow intervene in that. It was, it was Jacob's heritage. Nothing about that on the surface of it would seem to set him up as somebody that God would use. And isn't it kind of natural for us when we look at whether it's people that we know today or characters in Scripture that we feel like, man, for somebody to be used greatly of God, they've got to be a person of great character and strength, right? Don't they? And here's the crazy thing about the Old Testament. That's not how it works. It's what you're going to discover through this entire Unexpected Heroes series is the people that God uses are exactly the people that we wouldn't pick. They're the broken people. They're the dysfunctional people. I mean... Today is only the beginning. We're, you're just getting a little taste of just how broken the people are that God uses. And oh, by the way, that's the good news in this series. It's why there's hope for you and me. In spite of your home background, in spite of your past, in spite of whatever you've done that should disqualify you or disqualify me, God says, I have plans for you just like I always had plans for Jacob. I made it known when he was still in the womb. I already knew what I was going to do through him. And it wasn't because he was just going to be such a fine young man. Truth of the matter is, he was going to be a lying, manipulative brat. But I'm bigger than that. And God says, I can still work out that plan. He starts out with all kinds of brokenness and dysfunction. And the next part in the story is the part we kind of enjoy. We find the natural consequences of Jacob's bad decisions. It's easy to name what those are. Jacob's brother hated him and made plans to kill him. In verse 41 of 20, chapter 27, Esau was furious with Jacob because his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, when the period of mourning for the death of my father is over, I will kill my brother. And he meant business. And so out of that then, we know that Jacob was separated from his family for 20 years. Some of you in this room, some of you listening online... You know what it's like to have a family conflict that goes back to one particular incident. One or two things that caused a real fracture within the family and years later there's this division. Nothing's ever the same. Nothing ever seems to be right. Jacob caused that kind of fracture and he suffered badly for the next 20 years. Here's how Jacob summed up what those 20 joyful years were like after he worked so hard to get his way. He's hit in Genesis 31. This was my situation. The heat consumed me in the daytime and the cold at night and sleep fled from my eyes. I was like this for the 20 years that I was in your household. He's talking to Laban and saying, this is what these 20 years have been since all of my finagling. Sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it? 
third consequence that we see is that Jacob was deceived by Laban concerning marriage and concerning his wages. He got the woman he didn't want. And ten times he got yanked around by his uncle. Isn't it amazing how many times this happens in life? That the very thing that a person does to wrong others comes back on them. And it's exactly what happens in Jacob's life. It just falls back on him. And the net result of that is that Jacob lived his life in fear all the time. All the time. Afraid Esau was going to come hunt him down. Afraid of what Laban was going to do. Just always afraid that the other shoe was going to drop. Don't you know that when you live your life knowing that you're outside of what you ought to be doing when you're outside of God's plan, fear is always a part of the equation, isn't it? Fear of what's going to happen as a result of your choices and your manipulation and that's where he lived. It, it says it over and over in, in chapter 31. Jacob answered Laban, I was afraid because I thought you'd take your daughters away from me by force. All of his bad decisions are impacted by living out of fear. When we make decisions out of fear, we usually make lousy choices, don't we? It goes on to say in chapter 32, In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people. When he's praying, I am afraid that he will come and attack me. Just fear, fear, fear driving him. These are all of the results of the life that, that Jacob had lived. But his life is radically transformed. And now we really get to the heart of the story. And that is, Jacob encountered God in a way that totally transformed who he was and how he lived his life. And it all revolved around two encounters with God. The first one, I skipped over in the story. I skipped over it on purpose. When Jacob fled from Esau and his parents and when he, he took off north to Haran along the way early in that journey God intercepted him and there was a, a divine encounter during his sleep as he lay one night at a place that he would wind up naming Bethel while he slept he, you've all heard the expression of, of Jacob's ladder well it, it comes from this passage while he's dreaming he saw a vision of a stairway that started on earth and it extended all the way up into heaven and he saw the angels of God ascending and descending on that stairway as they moved back and forth from interacting with humans to interacting with God and then he sees the Lord himself step out at the the top of those stairs and God speaks to him and essentially what God says to him is the same promise that he had made to Abraham three different times. This is the covenant that God made with Abraham and his descendants. The same covenant that he declared to Isaac. And now God makes the same promises to Jacob. I'm going to make a great man of you. I'm going to make a great nation of you. All the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed through you. Uh, I'm going to give you a land that will be your land. And when Jacob woke up from that, he was <laughs> interesting. It says he was afraid. Once again, fear. But now he's afraid because Holy smoke, I just encountered God and I've never done that before. But when he got up, his response was, he made a, what we'll call an if-then commitment to the Lord at Bethel. Any of you ever made an if-then commitment to God? It's a conditional commitment. And, and quite honestly, it's the kind of commitment that we typically will make at the beginning of a relationship with God. It's a very, you know, beginning point, uh, very immature commitment to the Lord. Here's what he said. Listen to this if-then commitment. Then Jacob made a vow in response to what God had said. He says, if, that's the key word, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey that I'm taking, and if he will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, if he does all that, then the Lord will be my God. 
and of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. It's interesting, there's the, another place where the tithe appears before the law. Abraham has modeled this, and once again, it's a declaration that if the Lord's my God, everything I have is his, and I give him the first tenth to, to declare that everything belongs to him. But isn't that, I mean, when you just read it that way, doesn't it sound pathetic? This means yes and this means no. Doesn't that sound pathetic? It really is. I mean, when you read it from somebody else's lips, it's like, seriously, dude? The Lord has just appeared to you and he's spoken these wonderful prophetic words. He's made huge promises to you. And here's what you said back. Okay, well, here's the deal. God, if you'll bless me all the time, and if you'll keep food in my belly and clothes on my back and you'll protect me and you'll make sure my journey goes well and if just every day every, life is good and I never have cavities, if life is just that way, then here's what I'll give you, God. You can be my God. How's that sound? And I'll even tithe. But you've got to bless me first. That sounds so absurd, but can I just tell you, that gospel preaches every day in America. It sells like hotcakes. Most of the biggest ministries in America are built around that kind of promise. If you'll just come to Jesus today, oh, you'll be healthy. If you'll give to God today, you'll be wealthy. You'll be blessed all the time. And come on back next Sunday and I'll smile to you and tell you the same promise. Sickness will leave your family. You'll just live with blessing and prosperity. If you just come to Jesus today. Then you'll get everything you needed. Don't you think I'm kidding? That's the American gospel. And it's selling like crazy. It's playing on TV right now. On several channels. As I speak. That's where Jacob started. And the thing that's significant. The reason I take a moment to flesh that out is. Notice when that happened. And how he lived the next 20 years. Jacob was not changed by that encounter. He lived in fear for the next 20 years. He's still a deceiver. He's still willing to, to try and you know, grab what he wanted for himself. He is not changed by that kind of encounter. And unfortunately, some of us and a lot of the people that we know have had a similar encounter with God. It was a real encounter with the living God. May have happened in a worship service. May have happened when they got in a bind or got in trouble. And they made some kind of commitment to God. Oh God, if you just get me out of this, I'll live for you. And they got out of it and they lived like a pagan afterwards. Because they weren't transformed by that encounter. They made an if-then commitment to God. Oh Jesus, if you just let me not get a DUI here from this cop who just stopped me. And here I am snuckered. You know, if you just let this not, not get me in the pinch, I'll give my heart to you. You know, you don't get the ticket, you don't get the DUI, and then it's like, well, God, actually, how about if I come to church this Sunday? How would that suit you? Would that be enough? A life's not transformed by an if-then commitment, and Jacob was not. But 20 years later, now we're really getting to the heart of the matter. 20 miserable years later, 20 years that Jacob essentially says, I hated I was living where I didn't want to live. I was in the cold. I was in the heat. I couldn't sleep. My life was so miserable. 20 miserable years later, an indispensable 20 years, by the way. Jacob is now on the run. He knows he can't go back to Haran. He's burned his bridges there. 
He's trying to go back to a home that he left in a shambles where he really doesn't feel like he belongs, afraid of where he's going to. And at that point of desperation, when the news comes, oh, your brother's coming, but he's bringing an army with him. Bottom line, you're probably going to die tomorrow. Oh, he gets it. He understands it. It is the lowest moment in Jacob's entire life. In desperation, he sent his family away. Go get to the other side of the river. And if anybody's going to die, let me be the first one to die. And he thinks he's going to die. And on that night, when he's so desperate, maybe Jesus will come in and comfort him. No, you know what Jesus did? He sent his angel to go in and wrestle with him all night long. It's one of those times when God allowed in the natural something to happen that was the embodiment of what had been happening on a much bigger scale spiritually in his life and in his heart. I want to take a moment to just read the, the heart of this encounter that changed Jacob's life 20 years later. Turn with me to chapter 32. We're almost done. I just want you to see this passage. In the closing portion of Genesis 32, beginning in verse 22, where it says that Jacob wrestles with God, we read that that night, the critical night in Jacob's life, that night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven sons, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok, the river. And after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man, just very vaguely, a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched. And Jacob wrestled with the man. And then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He's realized in the course of this fight that he's not wrestling with a man. He's wrestling with someone supernatural. And by the way, Hosea goes back to clarify for us that it was actually the angel of the Lord. It was God's representative who, who he was wrestling with. And the man asked him, What is your name? And Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob didn't overcome until that, this particular night. The name Israel means one who wrestles with God. And Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. The angel understanding. It didn't matter what his name was. He was God's representative. But the angel blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. And the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip when he left that place. What a strange, strange encounter that was designed and, and succeeded in doing so. To show Jacob just a picture of his life. God was saying in that night. And he sent his angel to get in the tent and physically fight with him all night long. Now an angel could have absolutely squashed Jacob in a moment of time. So the angel obviously came with clear instructions. I, I don't want you to go in and crush him like you could. I want you to just wear him out all night long in a wrestling match. Because... That's a picture of how Jacob's lived his entire life. God had a plan for Jacob. God had a destiny for Jacob. He had declared that before he was ever born. And Jacob had been wrestling against that his entire life. Some of you, God has a plan and a destiny for your life. And with your choices, you've wrestled against that for your entire existence.
because you had a plan you had an agenda there were certain things you were determined you were going to get you were going to marry that man you were going to marry that woman you were going to have that house you were going to do that thing this is what you wanted and you chased after it you chased after the head of God and in so doing, wrestled with God. Jacob was determined, I'm going to have the inheritance, I'm going to have the blessing, I'm going to have the life that I want, and me and Mama are going to live here and be real happy. And in wrestling for the life that he wanted, he was wrestling against the destiny that God had for him, and he was wrestling with God. And when they had wrestled all night long, symbolizing how he had spent his whole life wrestling with God, with one touch, doesn't say that he punched him. It says he just touched him. With one touch, his hip was suddenly, it was like it was ripped out of socket. For the rest of his life, Jacob would walk with a pronounced limp. And truly, in every sense, he would leave that tent. And for the rest of his life, he would have a different walk. Because you see, the angel touched his hip, but God touched his heart. And he didn't just leave with a different hip. He left with a different heart and a different walk, a different life. Because that night, in the middle of this whole wrestling match with God, where he's, he's wrestling with the fact that I'm going to die, I'm going to die for what I've done, at the lowest point in his life, somewhere in that wrestling match, he surrendered his agenda, clearly. Because he left that tent a changed man. The next day, when he came limping out of that tent... He went to his brother, and his brother who set out to kill him was suddenly favorably disposed toward him, and they were reconciled. And he even paid him back. He gave him hundreds of, of his livestock from all of his flocks. They were reconciled. He made amends. He repaid much of what he felt like he would have owed to his brother. Things were reconciled there. And more significantly, at the close of the Jacob story, Maybe the most significant thing that Jacob ever did, we find that in chapter 35, Jacob consecrated himself and his household to the Lord. And the power of God accompanied him from that point forward. In chapter 35, we read, So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of all your foreign gods that you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel. And there I will build an altar to God who answered me in my day of distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all of their foreign gods that they had and the rings on their ears, basically everything on them that symbolized commitment to pagan gods. And Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. And then they all set out and the terror of God fell upon all the towns around them so that no one pursued them. It was a picture of the fact that God was powerfully with them from that point forward. We started out by saying Jacob is an unexpected hero and it's real easy to read the Jacob story and say well where's the hero part? We get the unexpected. He really was a scoundrel. But how is he a hero? And I don't want you to miss the, the heroic part. This is the most heroic part. You see God was bringing a group of people to a point of just finally knowing who the real God was and surrendering to him. And the most heroic thing that Jacob ever did, it was never to conquer a city or to, to lead a nation. It was to, first of all, himself surrender himself to God and then to lead his family to do the same. 
That was it. But oh, by the way, that set the agenda for a whole nation that would impact the history of the world. Jacob's most heroic act was to go back to his family and to acknowledge before them the change that had happened in his own heart. And to say, you know what, we can't live the same way anymore. We can't live with a divided allegiance. We know who the true God is. It is the God of our father Isaac. It is the God of our grandfather Jacob. And we can't hold on to all this junk in our lives. It's time to get rid of it. Give me those idols. Give me all that junk that you're wearing. Change your clothes. We are changing our ways from this day forward. I and everybody in my household, we will serve the one true God. And they were a changed family from that point forward. Some of us have really wrestled with, what is it that God wants me to do? I want to do something significant. And I want to tell you, for most of us, the most significant thing that you'll ever do is to fully surrender your heart to Jesus and to lead your family well. For you to ensure that for all that you can control and lead in your household, that you are a family that belongs to and lives to serve the one true God. By the way, history was changed because Jacob and his family served the living God. They happened to have 12 kids who became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, the nation through whom all the world has been blessed. You never know what one little decision, what a difference that that can make. But don't miss the fact that along the way, we've got to finally give in. Some of us who've been wrestling have got to yield to the one who we've been wrestling against. And hey, don't miss this in the story. Because as I look around the room, there are a lot of us who are parents and who are grandparents. And I said at the beginning, as we look at these stories, we need to figure out who we connect with in the story. Some of us connect with Jacob. But you know what the truth of the matter is? There, there are some people in the room, some of you watching online, that the person you identify with is Mama. It's Rebecca. Some of you have been helping a child stay at a place where they're the center of the universe and God's no part of that world. There's not room for God in that world. And it wasn't until Mama finally made the break from Jacob and Jacob was allowed to live in a far-off country under miserable circumstances. It wasn't until he had 20 years of that that he got a belly full of being Jacob. And could be transformed into Israel. Some of us are probably living in that far off country. Some of us have children who are living in that far off country. And all of the loving parent in us wants to bring them back. Wants us to save them. Wants to rescue them. And for some of us the healthiest thing that we can do is leave them in that cold place. Until the day when they are broken. And their hearts are changed. And they come limping back with a changed walk and a heart that's ready to become a different person. Part of the story of Jacob is a reminder that God never uses anyone greatly who hasn't been hurt deeply. I heard somebody say a long time ago, never, never trust and follow a leader who doesn't have a limp, who hasn't been through something really hard that has broken them. It took 20 years to break Jacob. Some of us are in that breaking process. Some of us have been broken and we're watching our kids or our grandkids go through the breaking process. It's okay to trust God with that and it's okay to let them go through the hard stuff to get there. Would you join me as we go to the Lord together in prayer? Father, we thank you so much 
for how committed you are to working out your plan in our lives. And part of the encouragement we see in Jacob's life is you always had a plan. You were working out a plan for Jacob's life through all of his years of rebellion and self-centeredness. And Lord, we say yes to your plan. We don't want to spend our lives. We don't want to spend the best years of our lives and our energies chasing after a small dream and a story of which, for which we are the central character. God, we want to connect with your story. We want to find our part in what you're doing. Would you help us to surrender to you? Lord, would you help some of us who are parents who are watching our kids go through this miserable wrestling match, would you help some of us have the courage to just let them go to a far-off place? God, for some of us who are watching our kids in the middle of that, we pray for grace to just be able to love them from a distance and let them get to a point of brokenness. Lord, for some of us who need to go through that, we invite you, touch our hips, touch our hearts, break us and change us. We want to be a people that you can use. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.